We're now going to have a reading from the Bible. And uh, if you would like to follow it, there are Bibles in the chair backs. And uh, it's from page 979. And we're reading part, part of Matthew's gospel account of the life of Christ. So we're starting at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, and we're reading to verse 23. So page 979, and we're starting Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much indeed for that reading. It's always a great relief when someone reads the passage that you prepared. I, I, I sit in sort of terror that one day your passage will be announced and it won't be what I've um, prepared, but there we go. Shall we pray that the Lord helps us to understand what we've read? Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word together that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us. And please would you move in our hearts so that our lives are changed as a result. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, uh, you've been doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and you've probably already been told that John Stott wrote a very good commentary uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, subtitled Christian Counterculture. And as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, time and again, you see the standards and the attitudes and the values which Christ wants of his followers run completely counter to what society around so often presses us to accept. Christian counterculture. Now, in um, starting that way, I'm not saying to all of those who've been confirmed today and said they want to be followers of Christ that there to be people who act as though their noses are permanently put out of joint um, and uh, that, you know, the only faithful thing to do is to be weird. Uh, as Jesus' followers, we do, however, need to ensure that we're listening to what he says rather than just going along with everybody else. I remember the testimony that was given by a girl at a confirmation I was at a few years ago. Uh, it was very striking. I mean, she was a very striking individual. Um, she was heavily made up. She was trendily torn in her jeans and all the rest. Um, and um, she talked about how she'd come to Christ as a result of uh, a faithful friend who kept talking to her about Jesus. And she, she said he was a real freak. Um, 
but she said she was so glad he kept at it because she found Jesus as a result. And she said about her life that she used to be a real party animal. And she made sure that the image that she projected on social media reflected that she was a real party person. But she said the effort of doing that, of continuing to maintain that image, was utterly um, uh, onerous. It made her miserable. She was always trying to live up to the image that everyone uh, expected of her. And she said when she became a Christian, she was freed. It was wonderful, actually, to, to hear somebody talking about being freed from all of that pressure around. And she said she was freed because she no longer saw her identity as whatever was projected on social media. She saw her identity as being in Christ. And as a result, she didn't have to bother with any of that anymore. It was a very striking uh, uh, testimony that she gave. And yet, to me, it sums up what the Sermon on the Mount is, is really about. It's about uh, being fully human. It's about following Christ in a way that is wonderfully releasing. But at the same time, it's also about doing things uh, you know, and approaching things differently from how society around would urge us to Well, uh, last week, uh, when you were on chapter 6, you came to that bit at the end, which says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, put God first in your life, says Jesus at the end of chapter 6. And now, as we've looked at chapter 7, or or much of chapter 7, we see what putting God first uh, looks like in key areas of Christian discipleship. So here are you seven who've said you want to be known as followers of Jesus Christ. We've got a number of areas that this will touch on uh, and that are outlined in chapter seven. So the first area is putting God first among Christian brothers and sisters. Putting God first among Christian brothers and sisters. And we're looking at verses one to five of chapter seven which start with those words, judge not that you be not judged. Those are verses that are very easy to misconstrue. You know what it's like. You're in a casual conversation and um, a non-Christian rounds on you for something you've said and they say to you, that's so judgmental. I didn't think Christians were supposed to judge others. Judge not that you be not judged. And yet it's clear from the passage as a whole that Jesus isn't saying that we're never to exercise judgment over anything. Otherwise, he could have hardly said the things that he goes on to say. Take verse 15, for example, of chapter 7. Beware of false prophets. Well, how can you possibly beware of a false prophet um, uh, unless you've reached a judgment that they're false? Obviously there's an element of judgment involved. So Jesus isn't just saying suspend all judgment across everything. Jesus is saying that among brothers and sisters, among brothers and sisters, we're not to have a critical or censorious spirit. 
Um, and I guess the reason for saying that is that when you become a Christian and you're freshly gripped by everything that God has made possible for you, and you start to realize the, the importance of living a holy life, that is a life uh, according to God's will, and you want to put him first, you want to do what chapter 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you want to do that, and the danger is that in doing that, you, you, you have such a stress on what's right and what's wrong, that you see your brother and your sister taking a different view of something, or acting in a way that you think is inconsistent, and it, you immediately jump on it, um, and you immediately attack, uh, and, and say, look, this is, you know, not only is this not right, but, you know, this, this means that, you know, you're... Um, uh, your, your very faith is in doubt by what you're doing. You see how easy it is to fall into a critical or censorious spirit. Um, and uh, every one of us, says Jesus, will be judged. And therefore we need to be careful about the standards that we're using in our dealings with one another as brothers and sisters. Because after all, none of us are free from sin. None of us reach faultlessly wise conclusions about everything. Uh, but that doesn't invalidate other things that we may wish to say. So the aim in Jesus' teaching is to be generous to one another rather than critical. And he gives this lovely uh, uh, illustration in verses 3 to 5 of someone trying to remove a speck, a little, little bit of sawdust from someone's eye when there's a dirty great plank sticking out of uh, th their own eye. Well, it's ludicrous, isn't it? And of course, it's ludicrously hypocritical of somebody to try to do that when there is something so obviously wrong in their own life. So if we do find ourselves criticizing others, we need to be very careful that we're not simply proving ourselves to be hypocritical. Now, how do we apply this? Um, I, I think in, uh, I mentioned earlier when um, I was being interviewed um, about the, uh, you know, the experience we've had in the last few years amongst conservative evangelicals of, of strains on our unity. And much of that has come about through the way in which people have criticized one another on social media. It's as though social media has encouraged people to be sharp and um, not merely assertive, but aggressive in their comments on others. As though Jesus had never taught this. Judge not, that ye be not judged. Um, uh, social media is one thing. What about, um, what about on our PCCs? What about here, closer to home, within the fellowship? How are we in terms of what we say about one another? And Jesus says, look, amongst brothers and sisters, examine yourself first. Be very reticent. Be very reticent about being critical. Don't suspend judgment altogether. But don't let that be the mark of your fellowship. So first then, the area of brothers and sisters. Now, putting God's kingdom first, secondly, in our evangelism. 
in our evangelism. We know that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called upon to tell others the good news. And verse 6 gives us an immediate contrast to what has just gone before. So, so far from being non-judgmental, Jesus says in verse 6 that if people are treating what is sacred like wild dogs or pigs on a farm, then we're to turn away from them. And the image he gives is of someone throwing pearls to pigs who obviously think they're, they're, they're nuts or peas or something that can be eaten. And when they find them inedible, they trample on them and even attack the giver. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? Um, in the past, people thought that within the church of God, it might refer to what happens when people um, give Holy Communion. You know, that, 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 that there's a call for everyone to participate. And um, maybe it referred to people who weren't Christians, who didn't have a trust in what Christ had achieved on the cross, coming up and taking communion. Maybe that's what it was, you know, tr holding out something sacred to those who don't treat it as such. But actually, it seems much more likely that Jesus' reference here is, is to when he was talking about the pearl of great price, do you remember when he talked about the pearl of great price? What he meant by that was the kingdom of God which we enter by believing the gospel. So perhaps what's going on here is that Jesus is saying that if people consistently despise or reject what we have to say when we share the gospel, then he urges us not to be unproductive for the kingdom. In other words, it's about glorifying God and increasing his kingdom. So if we're deciding that we're going to continue to bash our heads against a wall, rather than go somewhere where people are more likely to be responsive, we will be putting the kingdom first when we go to those where there will be a response. Now that doesn't mean that um, when we've shared the gospel with people and they haven't responded, that we're to somehow cut ourselves off from them. It doesn't mean that we stop praying for them. It doesn't mean we stop answering genuine questions. It doesn't mean we stop persevering when we encounter difficulties. It doesn't mean any of those things. I can remember in my own case... Um, I remember um, praying for um, uh, a friend of ours um, who wasn't a Christian. Um, and um, I started praying for her when she phoned me up one day to ask if she should agree to being a godmother to a child that was being baptized. And I said, well, what's the problem? And she said, well, I don't believe any of it. Uh, you know, I don't believe in God, so, you know, is it right that I should be a godmother? Now, I rather, I rather, I, I slightly repent of what I said to her next. Um, but what I did say to her was, well, if you don't believe in God, it can't possibly matter whether it's right or wrong. Um, you know, who's going to hold you to account? Um, but I shouldn't have urged her to do anything that was against her conscience. But it did prompt me to start praying for her. And I prayed for her for 10 years. And she became a Christian. Now, 
you know, if I'd, if I'd taken Jesus' teaching here and said, well, if someone's rejected the gospel, you know, turn away, um, uh, then maybe she'd have never become a Christian. So uh, Jesus isn't saying don't pray for people. He's not saying when people reject the gospel, never give it another go. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that if you're devoting your time to something that is unproductive for the gospel, go somewhere that is productive for the gospel. I can think of ministers who have been strongly opposed for Bible teaching in their churches. And it's always been clear that they're going to be strongly opposed. And they have been, and they have worked hard, and nothing has happened. And you think to yourself, well, wouldn't it have been so much more productive for the kingdom if you had actually said, okay, well, if you don't want to hear it, you won't. I will go somewhere where they will listen to it. Um, and Jesus is saying, don't, don't, don't just sort of trivialize the gospel as though it doesn't matter whether people respond or not. It matters hugely whether people respond to the gospel. Um, and therefore, uh, when we, 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 we invest in those things where there is response. So the second area then is evangelism. Um, going where there is response. Thirdly, the third area for putting God's kingdom first is in our prayer life. And here we're in verses 7 to 12. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Um, and at first reading, um, these versions sound a little bit like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? You know, okay, Heavenly Father, um, I'd like a Rolls Royce. Um, and you promised that um, everyone who asks receives. So I look forward to its arrival tomorrow. But then we get to verses 9 to 11. And verses 9 to 11 make it clear that God is like a loving parent. He's never too busy to be bothered with us, so we should never fear coming to God in prayer, asking for anything at all. We should never fear that. But he does know what is good for us. And he answers our prayers by giving us, according to verse 11, good things. So Jesus says, look, if you as, as parents who are nevertheless so marked by sin and rebellion against God, if you know how to respond well to your children, as you obviously do, no, no child asking you for bread, you, you, you're not going to give him a stone to eat. You know, if you know how to good, give good things to your children, well, how much more will God, who is perfect and is perfectly loving, give utterly good things to us? in response to our prayers. Now, you've got to ask, why does Jesus make that point here? Why does he have to tell us that God answers prayer by giving us good things? And it does seem to me that the answer is that so often we wonder why God hasn't answered our prayers as we wanted. Why hasn't he restored that relationship that we kept praying about? Why hasn't he dealt with my debt why hasn't he given me that job opportunity? But as people who put God's kingdom first in our lives, we remember that what God is going to give us is what counts as good in his kingdom. He's going to give us good things, things that really are good. So he'll answer prayer by 
saying to us sometimes, no, I'm not changing those circumstances, but I am going to enable those circumstances to be used to make you more like Jesus Christ. I am going to use those experiences you're going through to make you wiser and better able to sympathize with others, better able to serve me. In other words, he gives us good answers. It's interesting that there's a parallel passage to this one. It's in Luke 11. And in Luke 11, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's just a reminder that what, what God wants for us are things that are of eternal consequence and eternal benefit. And they are his good replies to our prayers. So we've looked at putting God first um, amongst brothers and sisters, putting God first in the way we approach uh, conveying the gospel to others, putting God first in our prayer life, and fourthly, we're going to look at putting God's kingdom first in our decision-making, in our decision-making. And the key verse here is verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So becoming a follower of Jesus Christ starts with a decision. We can either keep going down the broad way of verse 13, and in fact, to do that, a person doesn't actually have to make a decision at all. Uh, they just have to keep going with what others are doing. It's a broad way which um, is thronging uh, with people. Um, it's, um, the way is easy. Those who enter by it are many, Jesus says. So it's like being in, in, in slow, heavy-moving traffic. You know what that experience is like. You're on a motorway, perhaps. There are several lanes of traffic. Uh, you're all jammed up. You're moving, you're moving, but very slowly. And after a bit, uh, even though you're driving, you cut off, don't you? And you join in the conversation in the car, and you chatter about various things. And actually, by the time you look up again, you realize that you've missed your turning. You're just going along with things. And Jesus says you can do that throughout life, just going along with what others do. That's the broad way. Or you can decide to enter the narrow way. And the alternative involves a small gate. Enter by the narrow gate. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan has Christian encountering a wicket gate. It's a little gate sort of tucked in um, at the side in the hedge. It might be not noticed by many. But the imagery is of something that is easily, easily missed, but it is crucial. And it's the gospel. It's the only way to be saved. All roads do not lead to God. There is one way. It starts at that small gate, which is trusting the gospel and what Jesus Christ achieved for us. So sincere efforts and pious behavior do not lead you to God. 
Church going does not lead you to God. Only a decision to trust what Jesus achieved for us on the cross does that. Because only that deals with the big blockage in our relationship with God, which is our sinfulness, our desire to turn away and do things our way. Only that deals with the consequences of our sin and enables us to relate to God eternally. But Jesus says that treading this narrow path, that decision to go through that gate, and it is a decision, it is one that God will bring you to. I mean, he takes the initiative with us. In all our lives, we can probably look back and think, yeah, I wouldn't be here if God hadn't taken the initiative in some way, if he'd not led somebody to me or given me that set of circumstances. But there is nevertheless a decision. And we have to decide whether we're going to take advantage of that gospel and go through that narrow gate. But once we have, we discover that we're on a narrow path where the going can be hard. So Jesus says, um, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate, verse 14, is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Now, um, what is it? That, 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 that's um, so hard about this. Well, Jesus goes on to give two particular areas of danger when you're on the narrow path that can so easily take you off and veer away from that destination of life. The first he gives is of um, uh, false teachers. So he moves on. Uh, in um, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, what does that person look like? He looks like a church leader. He looks like a house group leader. He looks like um, a, a, a warden. He looks like a bishop. He looks like a speaker at a Christian convention. In other words, you wouldn't have thought that he would be regarded as a false prophet, would you? People sometimes say to me, um, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of going to a church. And I, and I say to them, well, do make sure it's a church that teaches what the Bible says, won't you? And they say, well, don't they all do that? You know, isn't that what, what they're all there for? And the answer is no. And if you say, and, and if they say, well, why? why? Why would some churches not do that? And the answer is what Jesus warns us explicitly of. Because within ourselves arise those who will teach what is false. So the, the mere fact that we have um, ructions over what, what constitutes sound biblical doctrine within the Church of England shouldn't come to any of us as a surprise. Because it doesn't matter what church you belong to, you're going to discover these sorts of things happening. And, and Jesus says, look, the thing is, um, somebody who sounds very convincing, who, who may talk a lot about the Holy Spirit working in the church and wanting to understand what he's saying to the church in the present day and so on. The question is, does that person really want to listen and apply the words of Jesus? Because that is what a good teacher does. Um, with, with, as, as Jesus leads on to verse 21 not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven so the key issue of a teacher is are they helping me to understand 
God's will that I can then apply in my life? Or are they trying to teach me something else? And Jesus says you can recognize who is who by their fruits. Look at what they're leading you to. Look at whether they're helping you to understand and obey Jesus more or whether they're helping you do something else. You will recognize them by their fruits. Well, if one of these dangers is the appearance of piety, but actually is a false teacher, the second is the appearance of achievement in verses 21 to 23. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning the day when history comes to an end and we all meet Jesus Christ, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or in other versions, you evildoers. Isn't that extraordinary? Here are miracle workers. People who, you know, are, you can't fail to be impressed by a miracle, can you? It's wonderful when it happens and you think, my goodness, there's some real spiritual power uh, in that. Um, but these miracle workers are called evildoers. They may be doing mighty works, they're not doing good works. And you find it throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament. False prophets did mighty works. Pharaoh's sorcerers mimicked Moses' miracles. Miracles themselves, which can so influence us, are not in themselves compelling. And Jesus calls them evildoers. Why? Well, because they're not helping people to understand the will of my Father who is in heaven. So as we come to the end of that section, and before we move on next week to uh, explore how we can better hear the words of Jesus Christ and understand the will of my Father in heaven, it's worth reflecting on all of these different aspects of discipleship. So as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, uh, we're all called upon uh, to be generous to one another and not to have critical spirits amongst ourselves, to preserve our unity and to be gentle with one another. We're called upon to, um, uh, when we share the gospel, to um, invest time and energy in those things where uh, there is response to the gospel. That doesn't mean we ignore all of the others or that we cease to pray about the others. And sometimes God does wonderful things elsewhere. But nevertheless, our investment is in gospel work. Thirdly, in our prayer life, rather than getting bitter that God hasn't answered our prayers as we felt he ought to have done, Let's thank him for the good things he gives us as a result and ask him to help us understand how good those things really are for us. And then fourthly, uh, let us in our decision-making, as we exercise discernment about where we go to learn about the Bible's teaching, what we make of particular teachers, uh, as we exercise that discernment and as we get... Uh, 
uh, as, as we see uh, how others around us are responding to different uh, things that they regard as very spiritual, let's keep reminding ourselves that the only thing that matters if we're going to put God's kingdom first is to obey our Father's will and therefore listen to Jesus' words. Well, I pray that that will mark your discipleship, uh, but all of our discipleships as well. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bluntness of Jesus' teaching. Uh, Thank you that he didn't indulge in any platitudes. Uh, He was um, very clear uh, about uh, the contrast between those who will lead us away from life and those who will deliver us to destruction, uh, and those who will enhance it. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, everything that he taught uh, about the goodness of God and the fact that we can trust him in all of the circumstances of life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have provided that uh, small gate and narrow way that leads to life. And it is through trusting in Jesus Christ. And we pray, therefore, that those things will mark us and that uh, we would be filled with thankfulness at your goodness to us. And therefore, that we wouldn't get bitter about things happening in our life and we wouldn't get critical of others, but rather we'd be more overcome by your goodness in how much you have forgiven us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.